Good morning, everyone. It's a blessing to meet with you all and to praise our great God, how awesome He is. We'll be in Hebrews chapter 13, starting in verse 13, if you'll turn there. Just one announcement. The uh, young adult event that was scheduled, well, for this week that was moved to next week is now on hold until further notice. So for those of you who are going to join that, uh, keep your ear to the ground. We'll let you know. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your awesome power, for your grace and your love, and for the way you speak to us through your word, through the ministry of the Holy Spirit to our hearts, and through one another, how you use us to accomplish your purposes and your will. Thank you for Jesus, who is our example, who is our Savior and our Good Shepherd. And I pray that you would guide us into your truth today, Lord, as we read your word, that we would be led by you. We would humbly submit and obey you, because you are our God. You are our creator. You are the one who loves us and has done everything to save us. And I pray we would live to serve you in Jesus' name. Amen. Years ago, when my kids were in primary school, I received a call at work, thankfully I lived very close, that there was an accident. The, the teen babysitting my children, who were in primary school, had dislocated his knee on the trampoline. So, upon arriving, my first impression was, this guy's in a lot of pain. Uh, he, was, he was not able to stand, and he was bigger than me, so I couldn't move him. So I called the paramedics, and um, he told me later that the doctor was examining his leg and just making small talk and suddenly like, whack, just put it back into place. And uh, he's like, ow, why did you do that? And he said, well, if, if I'd have told you what I was going to do, that I was going to touch what was hurting, you would have resisted me and maybe hurt yourself. So it was just better that I, you feel better now, don't you? Well, yeah, I feel a lot better, but why'd you do that? Uh, so that shocking pain, it gave way for him to be able to walk and to stand. And the book of Hebrews is really like that doctor. Saw the problem, took action to correct the problem, to reset that joint. Because as long as that disjointed, uh, just like that disjointed knee could not be stood upon, it couldn't be moved properly, the Hebrews were not able to, to follow Jesus Christ and to enter into the fullness of the gospel because of the things that were hindering them in their understanding. They, they thought that they still needed to offer sacrifices when Jesus had once for all paid for their sins. He atoned for them. They had a guilty conscience. They felt obligated to keep, keep the law when Jesus was the end of the law. He had rendered it obsolete as a means of finding righteousness and acceptance before God. That was by grace through faith in Jesus. They kept going to the high priest, thinking that he needed to make intercession for them when it was Jesus who was the great high priest in the heavens who sat down at the right hand of the Father who had accomplished it all. So it wasn't that they lacked genuine faith. Their faith was real. They're called beloved and brethren throughout this whole passage. But the writer wanted them to go on to perfection. They weren't going to grow. They weren't going to be strengthened until there was this correction in their thinking. And we can also fall into a works-based trap of thinking we have to do more to please God, that it falls to us, and it could be guilt that's motivating us to read or to pray or to, to fast and feel like, well, I, I need to do this. My growth depends upon it as if we can contribute to that 
but it's a work of God that he leads us to do, that we surrender to, we submit to him, we obey him. So this letter, it corrected error by sound doctrine. That faith coupled with obedience in each hearer would lead to growth and spiritual fruitfulness. And when it comes to us being set right, because we're connected to Jesus, the head, can you imagine the head being disjointed from the body? That would be a severe condition. And we are part of Christ's body. And if we're dislocated from him because we're not walking in love, we're not walking in his grace, then we won't be spiritually fruitful as we could be. And there will be pains, there will be sorrows that we face unnecessarily because of our own choices and unwillingness to submit to him. So God's not going to do what that doctor did. He's not going to shockingly manipulate us into place when we're not paying attention. He wants us to pay attention because he wants to uh, willingly surrender to his will, that we would submit to him and, and make a choice to do that. And it's he who works in us to be able to do that. He transforms us. The Jews needed the correction of this letter, and we need it too. So starting in Hebrews 13, verse 15. Therefore, by him, let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. But do not forget to do good and to share, for with such sacrifices, God is well pleased. In the previous passage, they were told to go beyond the gate, to go beyond the bounds of Judaism and to go to Christ who had uh, been sacrificed for them and made that atoning sacrifice, the one who shed his blood and cleansed them from their sins. There was no other sacrifice to be offered because Jesus did that once and for all. And so having received that sacrifice by faith, they were to continually offer this sacrifice of praise. That would be acceptable. Right? Oxen and sheep and goats, that was not acceptable anymore because as for atonement of sin, you could offer that as a free will offering, but not for atonement because Jesus had already paid that. But, and that was once a year where they would have this day of atonement. But they were to offer the sacrifice of praise continually because of what Jesus had done. When you're in a trial, when you're in pain, that praise and thanksgiving to God, that is a sacrifice but it's one that he is well pleased to receive. These people were told to remember Jesus, those who had preached to them the word of God, and to follow their example of faith. It said those people, their faith follow. Don't follow them. Be followers of their faith. Verse 16, it says, Do not forget to do good and share with others, for with such sacrifices God is well pleased. In another place, Jesus said that those who fed the hungry, that gave the thirsty a drink, who clothed the naked, who who brought strangers into their homes and offered them hospitality, who visited the sick and those who were in prison, and did so unto the least of these my brethren, Jesus likely appealing to his disciples and followers who were there, and says, when you do these things to the brethren, you've done it as unto me. I receive it as being done to me. Isn't it amazing that Jesus would humble himself to call his disciples brethren? Pretty awesome. And that when we do something to people he loves, he receives it as from our hand. This word translated share, it's koinonia, which means partnership, participation, to communicate distribution. 
we talk about fellowship, this is true fellowship. Koinonia, it is a communication. It is a, a partnership to participate. It's not just having small talk. It's really entering in to the life of others to bless them in Christ's name. And it is a sacrifice to attend a Bible study or a church service or to pray for one another, to give as he directs, to consider the needs of others as more pressing and important than your own. And when you have a heart of thanksgiving, not begrudging it, but joyfully saying, Lord, thank you that you've, you've brought me to a place where I can help them. We are, we are always the ones greatly rewarded when we sacrifice for Christ, right? It's not about what we've given up. It's not about what we've given. It's about the Lord who's given us everything. Continuing in verse 17, obey those who rule over you and be submissive for they watch out for your souls as those who must give account. Let them do so with joy and not with grief for that would be unprofitable for you. Pray for us for we are confident that we have a good conscience in all things desiring to live honorably. But I especially urge you to do this, that I may be restored to you the sooner. In Paul's letter to Titus, he reminded people of their duty before God to be godly citizens in Titus 3, 1 and 2. He said, Remind them to be subject to rulers and authorities, to obey, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing all humility to all men. And perhaps in the early church, there were people who thought, well, I serve the king of kings. I serve a greater master than this government. So I, I am justified to disregard the government or the edicts that were put forth. But those who are in Christ, we must realize that God is the one who has established the authority that we're under in government. That even as a child is to honor their parents as unto the Lord, so we are to honor the authorities he set up. So by extension... By obeying the laws of the land, we are honoring and obeying God. Recall the Christians to whom this was written. They were under oppressive Roman rule. These people were into idolatry. Emperor worship was required. That was one thing that was a sticking point for a lot of people. And Jesus had said, render unto Caesar what Caesar's. So give taxes to whom taxes are due, even if you think they're excessive. But render to God what is God's. So worship, that's for God. That's not for Caesar. But you ought to render taxes to whom they're due. They also, the Jews, were persecuted by the religious leaders, the Pharisees, that God allowed to be in authority. So they were to show them honor and respect. And th this is hard, right? To give the, the Romans honor, to give the Pharisees honor, the one who had killed the Savior, but they were to recognize they were an authority by the power of God and thus to submit to them. We all have a duty to obey and submit to the laws of the land. Like it or not, that's what God will hold you responsible to, each one of us. And this verse 17, it speaks specifically about authority in the church. There's that same principle that those who God has put in authority um, that we ought to be yielding to those who know God will hold them accountable for their manner of life and their doctrine. Now, some have wrongfully interpreted this, that you need to obey a pastor or a leader as if they are God, which is totally untrue. 
those who will impose themselves under the guise of spiritual authority to dictate what people must believe, how they must think, what they should, how they should live, you could be drawn into an abusive situation, almost like someone who pays a fortune teller to say, well, what should I do next? And they just want to know what to do. The fact authority has been abused at times in government or the church, it doesn't make it a farce any more than an abusive spouse is an indictment against marriage that God has instituted, right? Marriage is a good thing. He who receives a wife from the Lord receives a good thing. And just because people have abused authority, it doesn't mean that authority is a problem because God is having all authority, right, at all times. We in the church were all subordinate to Christ and all we're called to submit to one another in love. This means to be willing to yield, to listen. I like what Matthew Henry said. Christians must submit to be instructed by their ministers and not think themselves too wise, too good, or too great to learn from them. Their office is truly authoritative. They are to watch against everything that may be hurtful. They are to watch for all opportunities of helping the souls of men forward in their way to heaven. My observation is that people can be more open to biblical teaching or preaching than pastoral ministry because it can be a bit intrusive. And also people can tend to rely upon pastors for guidance or hope or answers rather than looking to Christ. Now we have, we're, we're all part of a body and we all have our part to play that we are called by God to do. And so it's for all of us to be submitting to one another in love, showing grace. So this rule, that's, there's a lot of loaded terms here where it talks about submit and obey and rule, those who have the rule over you. Uh, the church is not to have, like Jesus said, the rule that the Gentiles had where they would lord it over. They would remind people of their authority. They would threaten people that did not comply with them for their self-serving ends. It is the love of God that is the rule of the church. And we're all to follow the example of Christ who gave himself for us. He humbled himself. He became servant of all. So those who rule well are those who submit to the rule of God as a parent, as a boss, as a pastor, a leadership, leadership in ministry. That is the, a good rule is to be ruled by God, to be yielding to him, choosing to honor and serve him rather than yourself. We can make the mistake of dismissing the authority of leaders because we don't approve of their performance or their policies, yet that doesn't free us of our responsibility before God to do what he says. It's by faith in God we serve Christ, and it's by faith in God we submit to one another in love. Please turn to 1 Peter 5, 1 through 5. I think it's good to read some instruction for those who are in a position of authority. They ought to have an attitude that ma matches Christ in humility before the Father. Isn't it wild that Jesus has all authority, like in Matthew 28, before he ascended? He says, all authority has been given me on heaven and earth. How often do you remember Jesus talking about my authority when he was on the earth in his ministry? You never hear him say that. He, he didn't use it as a tool to try to wield uh, his power over people by manipulating them, by threatening them. He would say the truth. 
He had all authority. It wasn't something he needed to talk about because he looked to the Father in faith. He is the judge of all. 1 Peter 5 verse 1, The elders who are among you I exhort, I who am a fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ, and also a partaker of the glory that will be revealed, shepherd the flock of God which is among you, serving as overseers, not by compulsion, but willingly, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly, nor as being lords over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. Likewise, you younger people, submit yourselves to your elders. Yes, all of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility. For God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. To leaders in the church, God's given authority coupled with responsibility to serve, to shepherd, to oversee, to be an example of humility. And it's not for a pastor to demand submission from another, just like a husband should not demand submission of his wife. All of us are called to be submissive to one another, to have a willingness to yield, to be clothed with humility, to be established in grace. We're not to seek a crown of glory from men, but looking for our chief shepherd when he appears, that's who I want to receive a crown from, a crown that's eternal and glorious that I can offer back to him. In 1 Timothy 3, Paul warned against making new converts overseers because they could fall into the snare of Satan. They hadn't yet learned to submit to the discipline and correction of others that they needed. At the same time, wisdom is not gained by virtue of age because King Solomon, he began his reign as a wise man, but finished his reign as a fool, filled with idolatry, a heart that had drifted away from the Lord. Though he still had this great kingdom and all the gold you could possibly want. Verse 17, it shows that God holds leaders to greater account. They will give an account for those whom they lead. If you're in business or you file your taxes, you don't usually, it's probably not a good thing to do, to wait till the end of the financial year to begin accounting. Hopefully, you've done accounting throughout the year, right? I think about um, at church, we have reports that are generated uh, weekly, monthly, annually, in preparation for that big accounting day. So the accounting's been taking place. And if you lead, if you teach, if you see people in the flock, I encourage you to pray for them, to watch for their, your souls, their souls as one who will give account. Those accounts can be a source of joy. You know, when you're in the black, and you're like, wow, we're doing okay financially. Or it can be a grief where you are saddened by the things you see in them. You're saddened and grieved because of an attitude. And we see that with King Saul. Samuel resisted initially the people's demand to have a king because God is their king. But God said, listen to the people, give them the king, and tell them the manner of king that he will be. He's going to demand their best. He's going to take from them. He's going to tax them. Their daughters and their sons will be bakers and his warriors. People said, we want a king. Well, when, Sam, when Saul disobeyed God, Samuel mourned over him. He wept over him. And there was a point where he was no longer free to visit because they were out of sync with each other. Samuel was walking with the Lord, and Saul was seeking glory for himself. He said, yet honor me now before the people instead of let's honor God together. Let's humble ourselves before him. So God 
told Samuel, I said, how long are you going to mourn over Saul? Get your horn, fill it with oil. I'm sending you to the son of Jesse to anoint him as king. Grief over those who willingly depart from God, from fellowship, should not hinder us from rejoicing to do God's will and going where he sends and doing all he commands us. And Samuel did that. Obedience and submission really has everything to do with knowing God and trusting him. It's not because we trust the person to always do the right thing. We make mistakes. It's because we trust God we are willing to submit and humble ourselves before one another. Consider what Paul said to the elders in the church in Ephesus in Acts 20, verse 28. He said, Therefore take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also from among yourselves, men will rise up speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. Therefore watch and remember that for three years I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. Paul had this insight from God we're all to take personally. Take heed to yourself and to all the flock of God. We could be very keen to take heed to the flock, be very concerned about other people and what they're doing or what they're not doing without first submitting ourselves to God. And so the order is really important here. Submit yourself to God and keep an eye on the flock because wolves can come in. They can draw disciples after themselves rather than after Christ. Those who neglect to take heed to themselves, they're like the person that has the log in their eye and they're really preoccupied with the speck in someone else's eye, and they really want to remove that speck so they can see clearly. But with a log hanging out of your own eye, you're not going to see anything clearly. So you need to be straight with the Lord. You need to humble yourself before Him, and then you'll be able to see clearly. The church is God's flock purchased with the blood of Jesus. So it's a very sobering thing. It's a heavy responsibility And through Christ and taking his yoke upon us, by grace, we can stand. We can labor together to accomplish his will, to do his work. And the same risks the flock of God had back in that day where Paul's like, hey, when I leave, there's going to be people even from among you in this room. People's hearts are going to be raised up to draw followers after themselves. And I'm warning you, remember, I've warned you and prayed with many tears. So even if they didn't agree with Paul, They couldn't doubt his sincerity. He did love them. He wanted them to be faithful to Christ. And in Hebrews 13, 18, pray for us, the writer of Hebrews, for we are confident that we have a good conscience in all things desiring to live honorably. The writer had checked his motives for ministry. He had a good conscience before God, not a guilty conscience, not a greedy conscience, not a hardened heart but saying, before the Lord, we really want what's best for you. That's why we're writing this letter. We want you to be connected to Jesus the head in harmony with him, going on to completion. To labor in a pastoral role in the church, it wasn't an aspiration of many believers. Paul being one of them, he was trying to attack the church, much less lead anything in the church or plant churches. I feel similar in that regard that it was just a response to a call of God, not because I aspired to any pastoral or teaching ministry. And it's fitting that you pray for your pastors and teachers. 
your names are on our lips before the Father more hours than can be reckoned. Your, your names are on the lips of your leaders before the sun rises and after the sun sets every day because I love you. The Lord loves you and you pray for one another. You're supporting and encouraging each other. If the writer of Hebrews requested prayers, I also request your prayers. I ask that you would pray for me, that I would be in God's will, that I would submit to him. Without him, you and I can do nothing. We need him. And I know, we know by God's word and experience that God hears prayers, he answers them. The writer of Hebrews is unknown. Verse 19 suggests the reader Readers and the writer, they were known to each other and they were separate for a season, but it's like, pray that we can be reunited soon. Continuing Hebrews 13, verse 20. Now may the God of peace who brought up our Lord Jesus from the dead, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you complete in every good work to do his will, working in you what is well-pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Praise God, our God is the God of peace. Isn't that great? The God of peace. Powerful enough to open the eyes of the blind. Powerful enough to raise the dead. This is the God that we serve. God is the great shepherd of the sheep. All who follow Jesus are most blessed. Isaiah 26.3 says of God, You will keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Jesus Christ, he's the good shepherd. He watches over us. He told his disciples in John 14, 27, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. It's like I'm gonna give you peace and I'm gonna leave it with you. I'm never gonna take it away from you. We never have to be deprived of the peace that God gives us through Jesus Christ. We can always trust him, look to him and his promises. There can be so many problems in our lives, but know that God is completely opposite of those. Like we can see the evil in the world or the struggles in ministry or with personality clashes, but God remains good. Our health, it can begin to fail, but look to the Lord. He remains good. We can have confidence in him always. We don't have to be without his peace. We don't have to be alone. A lot of us can be like those unsettled sheep. I just imagine them, you know, the, the lion roars and they scatter. Or uh, the wolf, they hear him baying in the distance and they're like, oh, a little uh, nervous. But the good shepherd's right there and he has everything in hand. We can start worrying when we see sheep disappearing. Say, where, where is that sheep gone? Haven't seen that sheep in a while. I wonder if the shepherd got hungry. <laughs> or he let that wolf get him. No. We don't have to worry because we have the good shepherd who's laid down his life for us. He won't leave or forsake us. He's purchased us with his own blood and he's established that everlasting covenant with us. Believe that God is making us to do his will, that he, is, he has purchased us for his purposes to make us complete in him. This word complete, it means to complete thoroughly, repair, literal or figurative, to adjust, frame, mend, perfectly join together, prepare or restore. That's the peace of God at work in our hearts. 
And for many Christians, peace can be strangely elusive. If you think about this week that you've had, did you experience the peace of God? If God is the God of peace, and you trust your trust in God, has your life been marked by his peace? Now, it may have been fleeting, but was it there? We imagine peace as a feeling, like it's something you feel, but it's really something we know because of who we know. We know Jesus, and he knows us, and he has us. So we find our peace in him. Just like that dislocated limb must yield to the hands of the trained physician, we must choose to obey and submit to God's direction, his conditioning, his training. And God often uses situations of life and other people to accomplish this. And many Christians, we can remain in, in perpetual infancy because we refuse to submit our lives to obey him, to trust him. And we know little of God's peace, really, because we do not trust God. That's the bottom line. We don't trust him. We trust him for salvation, but we don't always trust him in the moment, in the trial, in the pain. We can put more stock in how we feel, what we see, what we want, rather than God and what he has said, because God has spoken. We can know him. So if we will go on to perfection brothers and sisters. We have to stop justifying our unbelief. We need to quit working to earn God's favor our way and surrender to his wisdom and will. There was one other time in the Bible where the same word for complete and perfect is used by Jesus, and it's in Luke chapter 6, 39 and 40. And it's a very interesting uh, little passage if you'll turn there, Luke chapter 6, 39 and 40. It's a very brief parable. But it's so insightful. Luke 6, 39 and 40. And he spoke a parable to them. Can the blind lead the blind? Will they not both fall into the ditch? A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone who is perfectly trained will be like his teacher. So that word perfectly trained, that's the complete word that God wants to do in us. He wants to perfect us, make us complete. Now, the answer to the question that Jesus gives is obvious. If the blind person is leading the blind, well, the second blind person is going to end up in the same ditch the first blind person fell into, right? You're all going to end up in the same place if your leader is blind. Who's the blind one here? Us. We are the blind ones. We're the ones who can't see where we're going. So who better to follow than Jesus who opens the eyes of the blind? We need to follow him. And too often we follow blind guides who lead us into a ditch that they can't even pull us out of. And we're seeking a feeling, we're seeking an experience, we're seeking a changed condition. We want the circumstances to be altered. And so we are stuck in a place where there is no peace there. There is no rest in that ditch. We must follow Christ. We must trust him. He puts in our lives brothers and sisters who encourage us, who exhort, train, and sharpen us to be more like Jesus. Do you know what will make you more like Jesus? It isn't knowing more, and it isn't doing more. It's coming to him in faith and submitting to him in obedience. That's how you grow, by trusting him 
by obeying him, by loving others, by following his example, being a servant of all. The Hebrews, and this is really summing up a large portion of the book, they could not go on to perfection if they did not realize that Jesus is greater than all angels, men, and Moses. They had to recognize that, that he is greater than any high priest that had ever served. He is the great high priest who offered once for all that sacrifice for sin. He purchased the church with the blood of Jesus. Throughout the book, he says, your hearts are hardened. Be careful that your hearts aren't being hardened uh, by unbelief. You're stopping short of the rest Jesus has for you. He said, it's hard to talk to you because you're dull for much hearing. You've heard this so many times that it's not really having an impact on you anymore. You need to enter his new and living way that he's made through Christ, through faith in him and obedience. The law, that's a blind guide for you, Hebrew. That's what the point was here. He's saying, this is a blind guide. It will lead you back into a pit of works and guilt that you can never extricate yourself from. And the people who lead you there can't pull you out. Jesus is the one to follow with hearts established by grace. And he said, careful that you don't despise the correction and chastening of God. Repent of the bitterness that sprung up from a lack of grace. Repent of covetousness. Be content with what's God, what God has given you. Now, I read that there's an estimated 360 joints in the human body. That's a lot of joints. Uh, that young man laying in pain on my trampoline, he dislocated one joint, that knee. And there's a lot of pains, worries, fears, guilt, cares that Christians suffer due to being dislocated from Christ because we're not trusting him. We're in perpetual pain because we will not submit to him. And I don't say this to be flippant or to be careless at all, but just to say a lot of the pains we suffer, a lot of the emotional trauma that we go through is because we are not looking to God. We are not trusting him. We are not believing that he can actually work good through this thing. That's a terrible thing. And so we need faith to trust him, to believe him, to rest in him. And we can suffer under a weight of guilt. We justify because we know we're guilty, right? We're guilty, and so we justify feeling guilty and letting our works being motivated by guilt when Jesus has provided atonement for our sin once and for all. There's nothing to add to that gift. There's nothing to add to that sacrifice. We've worked to earn what only can be received by grace through faith in Him. And I grieve over Friends who are foreigners of God's peace when he's given it to you. He is our peace, the Bible says of Christ. He's blessed us with every spiritual blessing. Do you believe that even when you feel cursed? That God has blessed you with every spiritual blessing. I plead with you guys who are nursing wounds that time can never heal. Won't you believe that our God of peace aims to make you complete in every good work to do his will, working in you what is well-pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ? Will you receive that? Will you believe that? Are you willing to admit unbelief and lack of trust in Jesus to do the, all he's promised 
repent, take courage in him to quit wallowing in the bitterness and drink in his goodness and grace. Will you do that? Will you seek him? Because bitterness, that's not a problem between you and somebody else. It's between you and God. That's the source of that bitterness. That's where it can be cut off at the root, pulled out. He can redeem. He can restore. He is good. Hebrews 13, And I appeal to you, brethren, bear with the word of exhortation, for I have written to you in, a few, in few words, know that our brother Timothy has been set free, with whom I shall see you if he comes shortly. Greet all those who rule over you and all the saints. Those from Italy greet you. Grace be with you all. Amen. Again, the writer appeals to them as brethren. He urged them to bear with the word of exhortation. That word bearing with, it means to put up with. (laughs) Guys, put up with this, please. Just listen. Put up with it. Suffer it. Just, Just read it. Suffer through it. It's a hard thing to say. It's a difficult message. It took me a while to get to the point, but here it all is. But it's for your good. It's for your growth. It's for your fruitfulness. It's so you can be connected again, aligned with Christ, walking in his love, resting in his grace, finding your peace in him that's been eluding you until now. This exhortation It's spoken to encourage, to comfort, and console. Isn't that cool that God will do that, that he would give us a word of exhortation that can be a hard word to hear, but in the end we realize, you know, that was a good word because I needed to hear that. It wasn't comfortable to say, it wasn't comfortable to hear, but I need this as much as anyone. There was a rest for them they could enter into through Jesus that they hadn't yet to enter into by faith. The burdens that they carried, they could be lifted. The unbelief that had been exposed, it could be dealt with. I don't know if you get much joy out of cleaning up the house or the yard. Uh, Maybe something you put off, you do the spring cleaning, or we'll do spring cleaning next year. We'll deal with the garage, you know, in five years' time. Or we're just going to buy a new house and we'll just get rid of everything. (laughs) Just make it a little easier. It's hard and tiring work when you're out in the garden or when you're in the house cleaning up. But when you're done and you stand back and you're like, this is pretty nice. Why don't I always keep it this way? Imagine looking at your life and saying, wow, that got cleaned up. The Lord did that. The Lord took away that anger and that bitterness that was just there and I couldn't get rid of. He washed me clean wasn't because we did anything. It's because of his grace. And that's the only way we can be free of our guilt and our burden of sins. It's by the work God does through the Holy Spirit when we trust in Christ. Naaman the Syrian, he's got leprosy. He comes to Elisha, and Elisha doesn't even come to the door. He sends his servant and says, hey, Naaman, go to the river Jordan and dip seven times and you'll be healed of your leprosy. He didn't say, wow, that's, that's easy. No, he was furious. He was angry. And he's like, there's better rivers to wash in than in Samaria than here or uh, in Syria. And his servant said, well, hang on. If he had asked you something really hard, wouldn't you have done it? Fair enough. What do I have to lose? I'm dying from leprosy. So he goes to the Jordan and he dips seven times. And coming up the seventh time, he looks at those once ugly 
signs of death growing in his body, and they're gone. And he has the skin of a child again. What was his attitude like then? He rejoiced. He returned to Elisha and says, take all of this, all of these gifts that I brought you. So thankful, so grateful. And your God, he's now my God. He was filled with joy. You too can be filled with joy today when you submit to Christ in obedience. This word is not to browbeat you. It's not to manipulate you. If you, it's to encourage you, and if you walk away sad from the book of Hebrews, it's because you resemble that rich young ruler who said, what must I do to be saved? Jesus told him to do one thing, and he went away sad because he was unwilling to submit to it. He was unwilling to obey in that one thing where he says, humble yourself in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. This letter concludes with grace be with you all. Amen. They could continue their futile efforts to come to God through works or their labors or the law, but Jesus has made a new and living way through whom we come to God. Please turn to this exhortation in Jude, uh, verse 17, one chapter right before Revelation. Jude one seventeen. Whenever you see the word beloved in your Bible, that should cause your heart to leap. That should cause your heart to rejoice that you are being addressed here, child of God, because you are beloved in his sight. He has purchased you. You are his. You are part of his flock. So you, beloved, Jude 17, but you, beloved, remember the words which were spoken before by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ, how they told you that there would be mockers in the last time who would walk according to their own ungodly lusts. These are sensual persons who cause divisions, not having the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. No matter what's happening in the world, no matter what you're going through today, we can keep ourselves aligned with Christ and his body through faith in him. We can be connected, we can have fellowship with God, we can be built up in faith as we're praying in the Holy Spirit, keeping ourselves in the love of God, choosing to be motivated by the love of God rather than the guilt of uh, feeling like, oh, I feel obligated to do this, but to rejoice in the love of God and how you've received it from him, to look for the mercy of the Lord. If you, God is full of mercies, and his mercies are new every morning. And in any situation, you can see his mercy. If your eyes will be open to it, he is a merciful God. He is a gracious God. He is compassionate. As we trust and obey Him, as we submit to His rule, we can experience that restoration, that refreshment that cannot be experienced in any other way. So I just want to close with this. May the God of peace make you complete in every good work to do His will, working in you what is well-pleasing in His sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. May grace be with you all. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word and this word of exhortation you've given us through the book of Hebrews. Thank you, Lord, that you know us and you know what we need. You know what I need. And thank you for the way that you've opened my eyes to see Jesus 
as this great high priest, sat down at the right hand of the Father, who's accomplished all that we through Christ can be seated in the heavenlies even now. Thank you for the love that you've shown us. Thank you that you have had compassion on us, that you've pulled us out of that pit, that pit of guilt and condemnation and really damnation. We're going to ruin and you saved us. And I pray, Lord, that you would make us uh, complete to do your will, that we would be your obedient servants who humble ourselves before you, who submit before your rule. And we thank you, Lord, that we can submit to one another in love through faith in you and, and be built up in faith, to be strengthened, to stand strong and be fruitful, not because of works that we've done, but because of you and because we are, our hearts are founded on your love and grace. And I pray we would drink that in, Lord. We would rejoice to be your beloved to know that you've given everything to redeem us. And uh, so much of what we pray for, Lord, you've already promised. You've already given it to us. May we receive it and may we walk in it by faith. Just pray for my brothers and sisters, Lord, that there would be none of us a heart of unbelief, hardness, dullness, that we would submit to you, that we would experience your peace because you are the God of peace who gives peace not as the world gives, but you leave it with us and you will never leave or forsake us. You are our peace. And I thank you, Lord, for this, uh, this encouragement you give us and pray that we would grow and walk in it, that your love would flow through us, that we would be filled with rejoicing and thanksgiving, whatever comes, because Jesus is coming and we will give an answer, uh, give an account for all that we've done in this life and thank you that it can be a joy because of what you've done. In Jesus' name. Amen.